0: Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Philippians chapter number 3. We're going to start at verse number 2. Paul is writing this letter, perhaps in the second year of his two-year detention at Rome, because the Philippians have sent him financial support to help foot Some of the expenses of him renting his own space as he awaits his imperial review, and also because he's sending back Epaphroditus, uh, whom the Philippians have been worried about. Because after he had delivered the gift, he'd gotten deathly ill, and uh, he's, that is, Epaphroditus is worried that everybody had been worried about him. So that is what prompted the writing of this letter. Uh, Paul tells them that he will hopefully soon be sending Timothy uh, with news of how things are pro- progressing with the imperial review process, and that he will be able to come and visit them shortly thereafter. Uh, so we know the Apostle Paul will remain In custody uh, right up to the very beginning months of 63, uh, because Luke tells us at the end of Acts chapter 28 that he spent a full two years awaiting imperial review at Rome before Luke cut off uh, his history and uh, sent it off to uh, Theophilus. Uh, So, Uh, I'm going to tell you later that I function on the assumption that the Apostle Paul was released from custody, because of his imperial review, shortly after the Book of Acts was finished, probably in the spring or summer of 63. Uh, But this letter that we're looking at probably is generated sometime in 62. And as hard as it is to acknowledge, the trouble brought on by the Judaizers a couple of decades earlier is still causing trouble. And Paul mentions that in his note to the Philippian church. Uh, He uses some very strong imagery uh, that these Judaizers are like the scavenger, diseased dogs that nobody wants around their property, because that's exactly what they're doing. They're spreading spiritual disease and digging up things that should not be dug up. So, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, "...beware of the dogs." Beware of the evil workers. Uh, they're causing trouble. Beware of the false circumcision, because that's the thing they're always talking about. You Gentiles, if you really want salvation in Jesus, first you have to embrace Moses. First you have to embrace Judaism by the traditions of the Pharisees. If you're if you're uh, a male, you have to be circumcised. That's your first step. And so Paul says, these guys, you got to watch out for them. They belong to a false circumcision. Verse three: For we are the true circumcision. Uh, the word "true" is not actually in the Greek text here, but it's kind of implied. We're the real circumcision. Uh, that circumcision is the cutting away of sin from a person's life whenever they embrace Jesus as Savior. So we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he means he means here, we don't make the big deal out of you have to become Jewish to be saved you have to be circumcised, you have to keep kosher, you have to dress a certain way, you have to worship a certain way. So, Paul says, that's not what we're about. We're about Jesus. And then he throws himself out as an example of someone that really does understand that mindset. He says, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. You know, if we want to play this game about Judaism and all the fleshly requirements of it, I can play that and win. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day, exactly according to the law of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he knows his genealogy. Uh, He knows that he belongs to a tribe with great pride. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, That seems to be a reference to the idea he doesn't just simply know the scripture in Greek. He doesn't just simply know the scripture in Aramaic, he knows it all the way back to its original language, Hebrew. In fact, he can pray in Hebrew. In fact, he could preach in Hebrew. He's memorized in Hebrew. So he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the cream of the crop. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, we have come to the mindset that Pharisees are bad, 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 bad. But in the first century, uh, the Pharisees still retained a little bit of their original hero status, because Pharisees came into existence during the second century BC uh, when Judas Maccabee and others were defending the Jewish faith against Uh, defective Jews and against Greek people causing trouble uh, that were trying to just say, you don't keep the law. You don't have to do these things. You don't have to circumcise your babies. You don't have to uh, read from the law. You don't have to keep kosher. Basically, all the things that were part of Judaism. Uh, And the Pharisees came into existence at that point point as those that were separated and committed to defending the law. Now, over the next two centuries, they got legalistic about it and got kind of crazy and made their own uh, traditions into rules that carried as much weight as the inspired word of God. And that's where Jesus critiques them as the hypocrites that they were. It's where Paul also says that they were defective. They had problems. Uh, They were, like Isaiah uh, preached, uh, honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so Paul here says, if you want to talk about commitment to the law, defense of the law, well, I was a Pharisee. I was a sincere Pharisee, a defender of it. As to zeal, you want to talk about zeal, commitment to doing things uh, in defense of the law? I was a persecutor of the church. Now, that seems odd now that he is a Christian to throw that forward as an example of his zeal, but he, he wants them to understand when I believe that Christianity was a cult, I tried to annihilate it. You want to talk about somebody that was committed to a cause? That was me. And then he said, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Now, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that he never sinned. It means that he was very attentive to following the rules appropriately And on those occasions where he screwed up, the moment he became aware of it, he did what was necessary to fix it. So he is very scrupulous in his attention to living by the standards of the Pharisees to the law. So he says, if you want to play this game as to who was the best at keeping things according to the flesh I would win verse number 7 but but let's contrast whatever things were gained to me back then those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ so he says what I thought was so important then I think is of no consequence now because now I know the real story. I know that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again for my justification. I know that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live every day, I'm not living it as a Pharisee. I'm not living it according to the flesh. I'm living it for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Verse number 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, the knowing here is the idea of relationship. He says all that stuff about ritual, I count it as nothing when it's stacked up against the relationship that I now have with Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Uh, So he says here, that stuff was just junk. Uh, Now, some people think that the word that he uses here for rubbish is the idea of, you know, throwing out the garbage, but, but it's, it's more than that. It's the idea of anything you don't feel you need. Uh, if you have a clean-out day at your house and you find a whole bunch of stuff that it, it serves no purpose anymore, you know, old paperwork, well, you shred it because it's worthless. Uh, you find things you haven't used for years. You try to sell it in a yard sale, and if not that, you take it and give it away to somebody that might actually use it because you're not. That's what he means. It's just junk. It's just filling space. He says, I have given up me because Jesus gave himself up for me. And all that old stuff, all that Judaism, I think that's junk now compared to a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. So he's saying, this is not about me being a law keeper, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is, when I come to the conclusion Jesus died to save me from my sin, so that I could have a fresh start in relationship with him. That's the righteousness that saves us. That's the relationship that saves us. In verse 10, very deep here, and that I might know him. That's relationship. And to know the power of his resurrection. See, that's a really big deal that Jesus bodily resurrected on the third day according to prophecies, Old Testament prophecies and his own prophecies. That's power. Uh, Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. I have the right or the authority to lay it down, and then I have the right or authority to pick it back up again. And Paul says, That's what makes the difference, is me knowing the power of Jesus Christ through his resurrection and to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That that gets, again, to one of my favorite quotations from the book of Galatians. I'm going to do it again. Galatians 2.20. If you haven't memorized it, memorize it. I have been crucified with Christ. That's the conforming to his death. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, in this physical frame, I live for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what he's talking about when he says, I've been conformed to his death. And then the fellowship of his sufferings goes along with Jesus' warning. Uh, If they treated me in this way, they will treat you in a similar fashion. If they hated me, they will hate you. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, take heart. I've overcome the world. And so Paul is saying, this is not about Judaizing This is not about Phariseeing. This is not about keeping law codes. This is about dying with Christ, rising with Christ, suffering with Christ, living with Christ, being filled with the Spirit of Christ, and producing the fruit of His Spirit, and doing whatever it takes to shine for Him. That's what this is about in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the ultimate goal. That one of these days, if we die in faith, we will be resurrected into those brand new bodies to continue living in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ who saved us. Even if we're still alive at the second coming that body is going to be replaced with the new body, like unto his resurrected body. And so Paul is trying to get these guys to quit focusing just on the current flesh. This stuff that we're living in right now that is achy and which has a hard time sometimes saying no to temptation and which is just going to go into the grave eventually. We've got to get our focus off of that and on to Jesus Christ and a relationship. Now, verse 12, he had just mentioned the bodily resurrection, which prompts him to write this. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, so I haven't reached this climax of my relationship, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. So I've got a goal out there. Um, Paul likes to use um, sports images. Uh, And one of the things that he talks about is races, and how you've got to keep your eye on the prize. you got to keep your eye on winning. Uh, and uh, he also likes to use sometimes uh, agricultural um, uh, imagery. And one of the ones that he uses is, uh, and Jesus actually is the one that, that brought this up, is that when you plow a field, you keep your eye on something at the opposite end of the field you don't look backwards over your shoulder because then you zigzag because you're not keeping your eye on your goal. And so Paul says here, I know I haven't reached my goal yet, which is to be in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ. And so I keep moving forward, stretching my hand out to grab hold of what I was grabbed hold for. And that is salvation. Brethren, verse 13, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, see that's the when you take your hand to the flower, you don't keep looking behind your shoulder, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I keep my eyes forward. I keep looking to where I want to be and where I want to take other people with me. Verse 15, Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. And the word perfect here should probably be taken in the sense of mature. Let us, therefore, as many of us as are mature. Have this attitude. There's the word attitude that came from out of chapter 2 about the attitude of Christ Jesus, which is humble and in service of others. So have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So have the attitude of wanting relationship. Don't get all focused on the Judaizing garbage. Stay focused on Jesus, relationship with him, and helping others come into that same relationship. And he says, if, if you got a different attitude, may God fix that. May God change your head. Verse 16, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which which we have attained. So let's keep towing the line. Let's keep going the way that Jesus taught us to go. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Uh, One of the things that leaders need to do is lead by example. And Paul does exactly that, and he says, so follow me like I follow Christ, and so here he's, he's saying, you follow my example, and uh, you pay attention to others who are following that exact same example, and follow their example, and the reason you need to find good uh, examples is because there's way too many bad examples out there, Verse 18, for many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There are troublemakers out there trying to get you to go their route. And he cried over this, and I cry over this when I see people following bad teachers, bad examples. Uh, Whose end is destruction. See, if they don't repent, they will end up in hell. And you don't want to follow them right straight into there. Whose God is their appetite, that is their belly. Uh, All they care about is what's going in their face, down into their stomach. Whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. So these guys are all about the here and now, and the me, myself, and I. And that's never someone that you want to follow. Uh, Folks, narcissists are bad role models. Don't do it. Don't follow them down that path of destruction. Uh, Verse number 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. And, of course, it's interesting. Paul would throw this out there. Uh, Because he is in Rome because he invoked one of his rights as a citizen of the empire. And that is, the emperor can review my case personally. So that's why he's here. But he's also writing to the Philippians, who are living in a Roman colony town in Macedonia. They are treated by Rome as full-fledged Roman citizens, as if they were living in the city of Rome itself, and they took great pride in that. So Paul takes and piggybacks on that idea of pride in citizenship, and he says this, for our citizenship is in heaven. See, that's where our citizenship is really anchored, from which also, we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's got to be four or five times that he keeps focusing back on the second coming of Jesus. So, we're citizens that are out of country. We're not in our home country. We're, we're visiting right here. We're resident aliens. Peter will jump on that idea later. Uh, and we're waiting for Jesus to come and take us back home. Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Uh, So, Jesus, when he comes, whether we're living or dead, will give us new bodies. Uh, Paul's written about this before when he was writing to the Corinthians and writing to the Thessalonians. He says, when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first, but not before the living in Christ have their bodies spontaneously and instantly changed in the twinkling of an eye. And so our bodies are all going to be like his resurrected body, And then we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And he's going to do that with the same power that was exerted to resurrect him from the dead. And if that's the type of body that we will have, then we shouldn't get too invested in the body we have now and let it run roughshod over us. And that includes not letting the Judaizers tell you this is how you need to restrict your physical body in order to be saved.